Joe Hodge is Senior Lecturer in Systematic Theology at Australian Catholic University in Melbourne. He's written the book Resisting Violence and Victimization, Christian Faith and Solidarity in East Timor, and co-edited a number of publications. He's published in journals such as Modern Theology, Irish Theological Quarterly, and the International Journal of Practical Theology. I sat down with him at the culmination of our research workshop on religion and violence to discuss his project entitled Violence in the Name of Religion. So, Joel, just to start us out, if you could tell me about the project you've been working on here at CTI. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, the project is on violence within militant jihadism, within Islam, and looking at the nature, the kind of extremist nature of violence within Islamic jihadism, trying to understand violence mm -hmm. in the context of jihadist theology and ideology mm -hmm. um, and their group formation, uh, as well as more broadly within the dynamics of modernity. So the history of these extremist groups uh, that is influenced by some of the forces of, of modernity around um, state formation within um, Middle East or Asia, Africa um, after independence, uh, the wave of independence for a lot of states, um, particularly after World War Two or, or before after World War One, uh, and analyzing, trying to understand what the violence is a symptom of, or what is it showing to us about the nature of these groups, these jihadist groups, but also what is it showing us about modernity. And how did you get interested in, the, in that topic? I mean, is th was this the project you were working on as, as soon as you, you know, were into your doctoral studies, or is this a more recent project? So my doctoral studies were centered on the experience of violence in East Timor under the Indonesian occupation and the role that faith and the church had in people's response to violence. So I was interested in totalitarian forms of violence, particularly, and sacred forms of violence, because even though it was a secular state that was perpetrating violence in East Timor, it still had a lot of characteristics of um, sacred violence. So I was interested in sacred totalitarian violence I started to write a little bit on jihadist violence and then it kind of mm. grew into this larger project trying to think about the nature of the totalitarian violence in Islam, which parallels the kind of totalitarian violence in secular context within secular states um, and has sacred dimensions in both, although the sacred dimension is much more explicit within um, the Islamic context, but um, within the jihadist context but both have, have sacred forms of violence. So I was interested in the totalitarian form of violence and the way that that, kind of, that form of violence seemed to be becoming more extreme, more indiscriminate, uh, more even more repressive, um, and trying to understand um, the dynamics behind that, that violence. Hmm. And moving back even further, I'd be interested just how you got interested in, in theology as a, as a field. I was interested in theology, I think, Partly organically, I'd grew up, grown up as a Catholic, uh, pretty strong practicing Catholic family, um, and Dad, uh, I remember always would would often talk to us, Mum and Dad, about about religion, sometimes about theology or about the church. So we'd we'd have some interesting and robust discussions. So I guess there was a bit of a, a family uh, context. Uh, and as I went to university, I studied. Um, history, uh, politics, and law, 
and I was interested in doing some more religious study, more theology. So I kind of finished off my degree by looking at religious studies in, in biblical studies and such. And then I continued on a research pathway after that, um, was invited to continue to do a study beyond the undergraduate study. So it kind of developed organically. And during that last year of um, undergraduate study, I also came across someone who became one of my future PhD supervisors just through some series of talks that happened at a church. And he introduced me to the thought of René Girard, a French um, theorist who is quite well known for his ideas about desire and scapegoating and religion. And uh, so I got really interested in his ideas and his ideas really helped me to make sense of my own kind of Christian faith and um, understanding Christianity more historically, the anthropological basis for Christianity, why Christianity was a convincing uh, movement uh, in the way that it helped to reveal violence and scapegoating. So he, the thought of Girard really helped to give kind of intellectual framework for me to understand Christianity more. And so I used his work in my PhD and then later in um, my work around jihadism now. I've just been looking at the book you edited called uh, Does Religion Cause Violence, published by Bloomsbury. Um, and you've got a, a kind of appendix at the back kind of talking about uh, Girard's thought, which I thought I found helpful um, reading that. Maybe you could say a bit about what the scapegoating uh, idea is and how that applies to uh, the study of violence in cultures and in religions. Yeah. Um, so Girard uh, formulated an idea that human cultures are founded on scapegoating. They need a, a way or a mechanism to unite people um, and bring them together so that they stay together. So the problem of disunity and disorder, Girard said, is is a major problem for, for, for human groups as they evolve um, and become human. The ancient groups, of course, didn't have police forces and military forces to help keep them intact. So how could they keep their unity intact? Um, Girard argues and shows this through uh, mytho mythology and analysis of mythology and, and, and anthropological studies that scapegoating helps to keep groups intact. Uh, and this idea of scapegoating develops from a previous idea that he formulated around de human desire, that human desire is mimetic. It's social, it's imitated, and um, this allows human beings to cooperate in a highly sophisticated way because we imitate each other and learn from each other and almost get into the minds of other people by trying to interpret their desires and what they're doing. So we're, we're highly sophisticated in, in our desiring. But he says this also leads to a problem. We, we tend to um, get into rivalry over common shared desires as well. Um, he does a, a really great analysis of Shakespeare to kind of show how these dynamics of desire happen, you know, um, between men desiring one woman and this kind of thing where imitation plays a key role. And uh, so Girard faced the issue of how do humans resolve these rivalries, these violence, uh, these forms of violence that keep reoccurring. And he seen, he came across this idea of the scapegoat as he um, analyzed all these different stories across different cultures and look at these different studies. 
and he identified the way in which these cultures were very much concerned with disorder. You often had a creation myth of um, the gods creating the the earth and human beings out of disorder across a number of different cultures and that this um, disordering would come about oftentimes through the kind of killing of some kind of person or god or animal whatever uh, what have you and um, that that would provide order so the scapegoating mechanism is something that Sherrod says has existed across different cultures and continues up until today and it helps human beings to get um, group unity and to survive um, in, in, a, in a way that other animal groups didn't have to face, the, the problems that they didn't have to face. They didn't have to face these internal um, battles of competition and rivalry in the same kind of way as human species faced as they, uh, as they evolved and then um, became human. So do we still see the scapegoating mechanism today or is this more of a kind of archaic society uh, where you have this? Is modern society different or? Yeah, Girard says it's still going on today. It's very much um, uh, going on today. Girard himself was uh, someone who lived not long ago. He, he just died in 2015. So he says the scapegoating mechanism does continue. It continues through medieval times, particularly when we see um, scapegoating of, of Jewish people and then we see this again reoccurring even in the 20th century of course in the in the terrible events of World War II and the Holocaust where we've got a whole people being being scapegoated and blamed for a whole range of things that were, were just ludicrously attributed to them so um, the scapegoating continues but Girard says because of um, the the biblical revelation the Jewish and Christian traditions the the scapegoating is um, being revealed. It's being exposed. So we we can't do scapegoating in the unconscious type of way that we could do in archaic societies. Um, he, after he formulated this idea of the scapegoat and looked at all these different um, mythological literatures, he then looked at the Bible and surprisingly for himself found that the Bible talked about scapegoating in a different type of way from other um, Near Eastern or other forms of mythology. And he argued then that the the Bible was starting to reveal the nature of scapegoating and the innocence of the victim. Even from the beginning of Genesis, we can see this with Cain and Abel, God taking the side uh, of Abel and um, confronting Cain as the murderer, Um, Joseph being expelled by his brothers, and being re- revived or, or resuscitated in a sense and then coming back to confront his brothers but reconcile with them and forgive them. So these kinds of stories were really impressed Girard and he thought, well, there's something different going on in the Bible um, up to, of course, Jesus himself being put on the cross, scapegoated by Jewish and Roman authorities hmm. and a, a, a mob seeking for him to be crucified. So on, the, on that basis, Sherrod said, scapegoating then started to be exposed. Humans became more self-conscious about their scapegoating. They still did it. Um, they still did scapegoat, but they couldn't do it as effectively as in the past because of this awareness of the innocence of the victim. And so in our own culture, we see the dynamics of scapegoating, but then the counter dynamics of defending the victim. And sometimes in defense of the victim, we scapegoat 
the previous persecutors or the perceived persecutors. So um, the dynamics of violence have become a little bit more complicated in modernity between um, scapegoating and then the kind of reaction against scapegoating. But then in that reaction against scapegoating, sometimes we want to scapegoat again those people who we we perceive to be victimizers or persecutors. And this happens within jihadism very much. Surprisingly, the jihadists don't see themselves as aggressors. They see themselves as victims. And they say this. Um, they say that they're the victims of international terrorism perpetrated by the United States or the West or what have you. So they actually claim that they're the victims or the people that they're defending are the victims. So in the name of the victim, they're doing violence and scapegoating in a certain sense their enemies. Um, and in the ancient world, this would not this would not fly. You know, you wouldn't go around saying, you know, we're poor victims and we need help. No, we're, the ancient world was much more interested in celebrating victors and conquerors and, you know, Roman emperors and all that kind of thing. Um, Romulus and Remus, the founding of the city of Rome. Well, it's the victor that gets celebrated. The, the, the losing brother, he just gets cast aside. Um, so in ancient kind of stories or mythology, the, the victor is the one that's, that's preferred. Whereas in modernity, because of the impact of this revelation of the victim, um, claiming victim status can be a powerful way to claim moral superiority and even to perpetrate violence against others. So it twists the, the revelation of the victim. There's a lot more cognitive dissonance, we might say. Exactly, um, yeah. Period. If someone were to ask you, you know, a non-scholar, someone at a cocktail party, let's say, you know, does religion cause violence, which actually is the title of, of your edited volume, yeah, how, how do you respond? I would say that it's not relig religion in the first place that causes violence, it's violence that causes religion. And this is kind of basing on Girard. Girard would say, actually, the problem of violence, the problem of human desire, this unresolved um, desires that we have in ourselves and in our relationships and that lead towards competition and rivalry um, presents the problem of how do we contain um, ourselves? How do, how do we stabilize our groups to make sure that we do survive? And in order to do this, we, we victimize, as I mentioned before, but then we create sacred stories and rituals to repeat the victimizing cycles and so Girard says once you've stabilized your culture by uniting it against an enemy or a scapegoat you then have to then or the you then organically create rituals and myths and laws that try to imitate the original scapegoating so that's why Girard says sacrifice is so prevalent across human cultures even human sacrifice because it imitates the original scapegoating mythologies justify the continued practice of these sacrificial rituals so that we we get the beginnings of religion in a certain sense that help to stabilize human cultures so violence actually leads towards religion uh, according to Girard and I think that that does make sense a lot of the archaic hmm. um, cultural context and even in our own context too where we can see state structures like Nazism or communism or f different forms of totalitarianism like the Indonesian form in East Timor or in Cambodia with the Khmer Rouge, they were very, even though they were secular type regimes, they had very strong 
um, sacred prohibitions, rituals. People had to acquiesce to the regime. Um, they had to um, uh, follow whatever the re- regime said, like it was gospel, like it was from the gods. If they didn't, they would be killed or tortured or their family would be affected. So um, in the same kinds of ways, um, totalitarian regimes try to imitate these kind of religious structures, but they do it in a very extreme um, pattern or, or form. So, yeah. So, so, I mean, it makes sense that people are always asking about religion uh, causing violence because your point is religion and violence are correlated. Right. Uh, it just we've looked at the causation in the wrong direction. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, that's right. The causation in the first place is the other way around. It's the problem of violence that leads to religion or culture. And then once we have religion and culture, we have a whole set of reasons or mythologies that we use to ju- to justify our violence. So then religion becomes a cover or a means by which we legitimize our, our sacred violence. As a last question, I'd just like to hear a bit about how this project you're working on, you know, how it was influenced by this workshop, the SCTI on religion and violence, including, you know, in conversation with the other scholars in, in, in various fields. Yeah, it was you know, the workshop has been great. We've had a great um, group of people from different disciplines, which has been very helpful for me in, in considering some of the main insights. I, I think in the first place, it helped me to clarify my main arguments. I had to be clear about what I was presenting. So, for example, how did I understand um, jihadism as a, as a to- form of totalitarianism? And in, in the way that I described earlier, I think a lot of the same dynamics in jihadist, jihadism uh, is, is um, seen in other forms of totalitarianism. So a, a strict divide between religion and secular doesn't necessarily work in in this context and i think that was a strong insight that came out of our workshop and and my own work um showed that and and it helped to clarify um some of those dynamics within jihadism but then i had to think about why are jihadists referring to god in their violence um, why don't they refer to other forms of ideology like Nazis or communists or what ha- what have you in secular regimes right. um, you use to justify their violence? And I think in in jihadism, there they sense the way that the Abrahamic traditions um, delegitimize violence. So Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, I think, all have a perspective on the victim. And they all have a sense that violence against the victim is wrong. And so jihadism has to um, twist that. It has to try to distort that. And by claiming God for their violence, they're actually trying to twist the revelation or the insights into the victim that come in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And um, the workshop, I think, helped me to clarify and really think about that in, in more depth so that now God, who is the defender of victims, according to Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, not necessarily a violent defender, but a defender of victims, according to jihadists, well, that God who defends victims is now commissioning them to do violence on his behalf, supposedly, mm. but to do violence so to defend the oppressed Muslim masses or the true Muslims who are oppressed 
by apostate states or by Western imperialists or what have you. Um, so they actually reclaim God to do in order to do violence, and they do it through this um, victim consciousness. So, so it was interesting to really clarify that in my own mind as as we discuss these kinds of issues in the in the workshop. And I think uh, another um, important insight in the workshop that that came up quite a lot was the way in which Western and non-Western frameworks were operating. Um, can you use a Western framework like Shiraz to understand the Islamic world, for example? Um, and this this is an important question which I discussed with my colleagues, uh, especially um, one of our, our Muslim colleagues who's a scholar of, of Islam. And, and I think it, it is possible to use frameworks uh, from the West to help understand other cultures if they have an applicability, if they're able to help us gain insight into other um, data or other people's perspectives. But at the same time, they have to be put into careful um, use when when dealing with with people who are not from your or traditions that are not your own. And uh, so I've I've tried to be very careful in the way that I've treated Islam uh, as a tradition that uh, is on the side of the victim, and also um, to try to understand the history, theology, ideology of the jihadist movement um, around which there is a lot of literature. So I really tried to immerse myself in that literature to make sure that what I was uh, um, seeing happening was actually borne out in, in the literature as well. Joel Hodge, thanks so much for being on the podcast and for being a part of this workshop. Thanks very much, Josh. Thanks to CTI. To learn more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.